1: specifically they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too so let's get right to it the new moneymaker scratch off from the ohio lottery doesn't beat around the bush money maker play the game and you could win money up to two million dollars with more than 88 million in prizes ranging from 50 to 500 moneymaker cuts right to the cash lottery players are subject to ohio laws and commission regulations play responsibly there's a new class of blockbuster drugs
0: On a chilly day in 1703, church bells rang across the courtyard of the Bastille, the fortress prison in the center of Paris. A prisoner had died.
1: The dead man had been a longtime resident of his cell in the Bastille, and according to the records, he had no name. He was simply known by his face, or rather the hideous metal dome that covered it. This was the man in the iron mask.
0: The man's very existence had been a hushed rumor that had spread across all of France during his 30-year incarceration. His death would lead to decades of speculation about his
1: real identity. French officials would be of little help. Mere hours after he died, the man's cell was scrubbed clean of any personal effects that may have indicated who he really was.
0: For over a century, The work of writers and storytellers would lead the general public to associate the man in the iron mask with conspiracies of secret brothers and imprisoned royalty, all of which had little basis in actual
1: fact. But then, in more recent history, historian Paul Sonino came across an intricate series of cause-and-effect events that occurred over decades in the French court. And this account may actually provide real clues as to who the man in the iron mask was. He wasn't a king's brother or a bastard son. He was just a poor valet who got caught up in a saga of greed, ambition, extortion, and war.
0: In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, We don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
1: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Richard.
0: And I'm your host, Molly.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way
0: to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information.
1: You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
0: Last episode, we discussed a number of famous, unlikely theories as to the identity of the man in the iron mask.
1: Some accounts state that the man was an illegitimate son of Queen Anne of France. Another more famous guess is that he was the twin brother of Anne's trueborn son, the Sun King of France, Louis XIV. In both versions of this story, he was imprisoned so that there would not be a battle of claims for the French throne. But newly
0: discovered evidence would seem to point to the reality that the man in the iron mask was not of royal blood. He was just a humble servant. The
1: 1669 arrest warrant for the man named him as Ustas Doge. No reason was given for the arrest or for the severely harsh sentence in which Doge was placed in solitary confinement in one of the largest prisons in the country.
0: The gossip about the mysterious man spread throughout France in the 17th and 18th centuries. But it's only recently that historians have really looked at the historical records to try and surmise who he really was.
1: Last week, we discussed the ways in which Eustache d'Augé could have been made up as an alias in order to hide the man's real name. But it's actually possible that the man in the iron mask was really named Eustache Doge.
0: In this episode, we're going to take a look at the dense history that may have led to the man being forced to wear his famous mask. But first, we'll explore how the more famous theories came to be accepted in the first place. In the wake of the man's death in 1703, playwright-turned-revolutionary François-Marie marie Arouet better known by his pen name, Voltaire, took it upon himself to identify the lonely prisoner.
1: Voltaire began writing political satire in the early 1700s, but he was arrested and imprisoned in 1717 for a poem that insinuated that the Duke of Orleans was having an incestuous affair with his daughter, the Duchess of Berry.
0: Voltaire resided in the Bastille nearly 15 years after the man in the iron mask had passed away.
1: While serving his 11-month sentence, Voltaire passed the time by interviewing his fellow prisoners and gathering clues about the now vacant cell where the man had lived out most of his days.
0: After he was released, Voltaire published his findings in a series of writings that declared the masked prisoner had in fact been the illegitimate child of Queen Anne and her chief advisor, Cardinal Jules Mazarin.
1: Voltaire's account didn't stop with this scandalous claim. He was also the first person to report on the actual existence of the iron mask and published a detailed description of the metal headset. He wrote of a, quote, movable hinged lower jaw Held in place by springs that made it possible to eat while wearing it.
0: However, Voltaire was a political writer. His depiction of the man in the iron mask served a purpose to further the idea in the minds of the French populace that the monarchy was cruel and corrupt.
1: This only helped fuel the growing rage against the nobility that defined Paris through the late 1700s and culminated in the breakout of the French Revolution in 1789.
0: When the mob stormed the Bastille in July of 1789, some who were there claimed to have found the famous iron mask, though there's no concrete proof that this actually happened.
1: Either way, the story of the man in the iron mask became a footnote in history as Paris succumbed to the chaos of the revolution.
0: But then, in 1850, author Alexandre Dumas published The Vicomte of Bragelonne*. Ten Years Later, the third and final entry in his trilogy that began with The Three Musketeers. The third section of this novel was titled The Man in the Iron Mask, Dumas made the man into a legend by immortalizing him in fiction.
1: Dumas built upon the story that Voltaire had crafted 70 years prior. In the novella, The Man in the Iron Mask is revealed to be the secret twin brother of Louis XIV.
0: Dumas' Man in the Iron Mask is one of Hollywood's favorite stories to mine. Since it was first adapted as a silent film in 1909, The story has been the subject of 16 movies from numerous countries over the course of the 20th century. The most recent and most famous of these starred Leonardo DiCaprio in dual roles as Louis XIV and his twin brother, the Man in the Iron Mask.
1: As such, the common conception of the Man in the Iron Mask story is largely wrapped up in these famous fictional tellings, and none of it is based in real fact beyond Voltaire's confirmation that at some point in the late 17th century, a man with no name resided in the Bastille who was said to be confined to an iron mask.
0: There was no twin brother. There was no illegitimate brother. Beyond the fact that it would have been almost impossible for the King and Queen of France to hide the birth of a noble child, especially after they had publicly struggled to conceive for so long, Queen Anne didn't care that much about France.
1: We discussed in our last episode how Queen Anne was accused multiple times throughout her marriage to King Louis XIII of betraying France's interests in favor of her native Spain.
0: So, if she had a child that had a claim to the French throne, she wouldn't have kept quiet if her husband or son had tried to lock the boy up in an iron mask she would have told everyone she knew and likely relished the turmoil that a struggle between the two sons would have caused for France.
1: The inherent issue in the mystery of the man in the iron mask is that there is a lot written in the fictionalized account and very little available in terms of hard facts.
0: But in the absence of any real proof that the man was of royal blood, we have to begin our search by accepting the possibility that the original warrant was correct in its listing of the man's name.
1: The man in the iron mask's real name was Eustache Doge. He bore no relation to the royal family, but he ended up embroiled in a massive conspiracy that stemmed from the very center of the monarchy.
0: All of which leads to the question, what on earth did Doge do to warrant such a punishment?
1: In our last episode, we touched upon the likely theory that Doge was some kind of valet whose life intersected with the French nobility in the 1660s.
0: Valets, which was another name for servants in that time, were responsible for carrying out scrupulous and sometimes unscrupulous deeds for the officials who
1: employed them. It's not a stretch to assume that a valet for a powerful member of the French court would be privy to secrets that may put a target on his back.
0: This is apparently what happened to De He learned something he shouldn't have and ended up condemned to the mask in order to ensure his silence.
1: Voltaire was the one who followed the breadcrumbs and eventually linked Cardinal Mazarin and by extension Queen Anne to the man in the iron mask.
0: While Voltaire was wrong about Mazarin and Anne having an illegitimate child, he was correct in deducing they were
1: involved in the story. Eustache Doge was an unassuming servant that learned something which would tarnish the reputation of Cardinal Mazarin, King Louis XIV, and France as a whole. And thus, he was silenced. The series of events that led to that happening are
0: complicated, to say the least.
1: When we come back, we'll look at the catalyst that kicked off a series of reactions over several decades and ultimately landed Ustache Doge in that cell with the iron mask secured to his head. Now back to our unexplained mystery.
0: Information moves slower in early modern Europe than it does today writing ability, and even bare literacy were privileges, and it was easy for a story to be embellished and taken as fact by the unassuming populace.
1: If enough people repeated a story, it would be taken as the truth.
0: This was the case for the man in the iron mask. Though his legend is believed to begin in 1669, when he was first imprisoned, the story that led him to that prison begins much
1: earlier. The saga, the real saga, not the fictionalized account, begins in 1625 when Henrietta Maria, Princess of France, was first courted by Charles I, Prince of Wales and future King of England. This is the version of events as chronicled in The Search for the Man in the Iron Mask, a historical detective story, by Paul Sanino, which we looked at in our research for these episodes.
0: This historical context sets the stage for the man's story. His fate is actually intertwined with the union of Henrietta and Charles. Bear with us. This is a long, complicated affair, and the man in the iron mask's role won't become apparent until the end of it.
1: Princess Henrietta and Charles married by proxy in 1625 after Charles was crowned king. Henrietta met Charles's stand-in at the venerable Notre-Dame Cathedral in Paris, and the Union was ratified.
0: There is a reason that Charles couldn't be present at his own wedding ceremony. Henrietta was not a popular choice for queen among the English Parliament. She was Catholic, and England was controlled by the Protestant Church of England, which urged Charles to keep a Protestant wife.
1: But Charles chose to marry for love rather than for politics. Arietta arrived in England in 1625, shortly after the wedding. She made it clear that she would not be renouncing her Catholic faith, regardless of the danger that it could put her in.
0: King Charles kept British Parliament closed and the government effectively shut down until his new bride had arrived and gotten settled in the safety of his castle.
1: It was a smart move. Henrietta's presence in England infuriated the Protestant parliament and set the government at odds with the king. The idea of a French Catholic wearing the crown jewels, the most valuable vestments in all of England, was very offensive to just about everyone except King Charles.
0: It would take nearly 20 years, but Henrietta's presence in the English court eventually led to an outbreak of civil war.
1: Enter Cardinal Jules Mazarin,
0: Mazarin first arrived in the French court from the Holy Roman Empire in 1640. From the outset, he was determined to consolidate wealth, power, and influence, and he was convinced that the French court was the place to do that.
1: Throughout the 1630s and early 1640s, Mazarin had served as a diplomat for Pope Urban VIII. Though he wore the Catholic vestments in his official capacity, He was not a priest something that mazarin probably enjoyed
0: as an emissary for the pope mazarin was entitled to gifts and considerations from the leaders he dealt with many of these were intended to be delivered back to the pope but mazarin often kept them for himself he developed quite an appetite for the finer things in life
1: he also sent several of these gifts to cardinal richelieu in france Mazarin was shrewd, and he knew that he would eventually need to move on from Rome. He had specifically chosen Cardinal Richelieu in order to help secure his own future in the French Catholic Church.
0: The ploy worked, and Mazarin eventually moved permanently to Paris in order to become Cardinal Richelieu's apprentice. When Richelieu died in 1642, Mazarin became the new Cardinal of France and the chief advisor to King Louis XIII.
1: And when Louis XIII died the next year, Mazarin suddenly found himself as the chief advisor to the five-year-old Louis XIV.
0: This essentially meant that Cardinal Mazarin was the acting ruler of France.
1: True to character, Mazarin set about finding ways to use this position to increase his own wealth and influence and an irresistible opportunity was about to present itself. After decades of political and religious strife between King Charles I and the English Parliament, England descended into civil war in 1642. Oliver Cromwell,
0: military leader and head of Parliament, took a stand against Charles I's Royalist Party. Lines were drawn and the two men declared war.
1: From the outset, the English royal family was in a rough position. Though they had the individual wealth of the monarchy, Parliament had England's treasury and the backing of the Protestant church.
0: Charles I and his friend, Catholic Queen Henrietta, could barely afford to pay their soldiers for the war. Desperate for funds, they began gathering their extensive collection of jewels, valuables, and family heirlooms with the intent to sell them to support the war effort. They even resorted to selling the crown jewels of England.
1: So in March of 1642, as Charles I commanded his army, Henrietta set sail for Europe on a clandestine mission to find a buyer for England's most precious royal artifacts. She arrived in the Netherlands, and from there, she started putting out feelers for potential offers.
0: Henrietta knew she had to keep her mission under wraps. Because of her Catholicism, she'd never been popular in England. Her reputation as a lavish spender only made her image worse in the public eye.
1: If word got out that the French-born Catholic Queen of England was trying to sell England's crown jewels, then it would only strengthen Cromwell's position in the eyes of the common folk.
0: Henrietta managed to successfully sell a large amount of her own jewelry, as well as Charles' family heirlooms, always sending the money back to England for Charles to use in the war.
1: The crown jewels were a bit more complicated, though. There were few who could afford them, and even fewer who wanted the optics of buying them under the table. As a matter of
0: fact, Henrietta's most avid bidder for the crown jewels was England itself.
1: Despite Henrietta's best efforts at secrecy, Oliver Cromwell did eventually get wind of the plot to sell the jewels. He became desperate to retain them for England because he knew doing so would make him even more popular among his supporters.
0: Throughout the mid-1640s, Cromwell dispatched agents to negotiate with Henrietta for the sale of the jewels. Cromwell was, in essence, offering to fund his own enemy in the war, but the jewels were just that important to him.
1: However, before Henrietta became desperate enough to actually consider selling the jewels to Cromwell, another bidder entered the picture.
0: As we've said, Cardinal Mazarin of France became one of the most powerful people in the country after the death of King Louis XIII in 1643. Louis's will explicitly forbade his wife, Queen Anne, from acting as the regent in the event of his death.
1: As chief advisor to the new five-year-old king, Mazarin intervened on Queen Anne's behalf to the French Parliament. That section of her late husband's will was annulled. In her son's stead, Queen Anne became the acting ruler of France, but she deferred heavily to her new friend and ally, Cardinal Mazarin.
0: Mazarin was appointed as the head of the French staff, which essentially gave him control over all major aspects of the kingdom. He administered Queen Anne's affairs on her behalf, oversaw the education of the young King Louis XIV, managed the country's finances, and dictated foreign policy.
1: All the while, he used his own growing private fortune to invest as a superintendent in the fur trading industry in the New World essentially using French soldiers, ships, and forts to further his own personal interests.
0: He was, for all intents and purposes, totally unchecked in his power and held a near-absolute monopoly over the entire kingdom of France. All the while, he merged his own business investments with French affairs and became so extravagantly wealthy that his fortune was rumored to rival that of the French king.
1: From the moment he arrived in France, Mazarin had wanted power and money. He now had both in spades, but it still wasn't enough.
0: The Cardinal had developed something of a large-scale gambling addiction. He dictated French policy and diplomacy with the intent of increasing his own fortune. He amassed a huge collection of priceless valuables from all over the world, and he loved going all out for the things that conventional wisdom said he'd never be able to possess.
1: All of this is to say that when Cardinal Mazarin got word that the nearly priceless crown jewels of England were on the market, he couldn't resist.
0: The Cardinal was too preoccupied with the business of running France to meet with Henrietta himself. So he sent an envoy to the Netherlands to bid on the
1: jewels. Luckily the Cardinal had made use of his position and amassed a group of loyal followers. One of these followers was a minister named Jean-Baptiste Colbert.
0: Colbert had quickly made himself a valuable ally after Mazarin took control of France in 1643. Throughout Mazarin's tenure as chief advisor and de facto ruler, Colbert served faithfully at the Cardinal's side.
1: But Colbert's real importance has less to do with the role he played in Mazarin's administration and more to do with the men he brought with him into Mazarin's inner circle.
0: One of Colbert's top employees was his accountant, a man named Antoine Hercule Picon. Picon, it turns out, came from a town north of Paris called Saint Lys, which would be important later on. Henrietta was more than willing to sell the crown jewels to Mazarin. She'd been in the Netherlands for months, trying unsuccessfully to line up any buyer who wasn't Oliver Cromwell.
1: But despite the fact that Mazarin was ostensibly a representative of Henrietta's nephew, King Louis XIV, her dealings with Mazarin were far from cordial. Henrietta was ill, she was desperate, and the only currency she had were the jewels and valuables she was trying to sell. Over several months,
0: Mazarin strong-armed her to accept dismal offers on the jewels. He was short-changing her, but she had little choice.
1: She agreed to an installment plan. The crown jewels were a large collection, and every individual item was worth a fortune. It was much safer to send them piece by piece to France so as not to attract attention.
0: Henrietta returned to France in 1645, essentially living in hiding. She continued to send off the jewels and other valuables to Mazarin and her other buyers, all the while sending what money she got back to her husband.
1: In the end, it was all for nothing. The Royalists lost the English Civil War in 1646 when Charles I was captured by the Scottish and extradited back to England.
0: He was executed in 1649 and Henrietta was left essentially adrift in France, unable to return to England and unwanted in her homeland. She sold off what she had left. She even sold some of the jewels back to Cromwell's England since it no longer mattered to her. She also continued selling to Mazarin, who seemingly didn't care that by continuing to take advantage of her dismal position, he was leaving her with nothing.
1: The execution of the English king by the English parliament sent a wave of revolution across Europe. Once it became known that a country could function just fine without a royal monarch, people in other European countries started to get ideas. Throughout the
0: late 1640s and early 1650s, France became embroiled in civil wars between the monarchy and the parliament.
1: Mazarin oversaw the defense in these wars even as he was forced to exile himself from Paris for his own safety.
0: The turmoil only ended in 1654 when Mazarin's forces successfully quashed the leaders of the revolt. King Louis XIV, then 16, was formally crowned as the King of France in that same year. The country reunited under a monarch though Mazarin still maintained a massive amount of power over the country as Louis XIV's advisor.
1: It's worth noting here that the fictionalized stories about the man in the iron mask tend to fixate on King Louis XIV, as if he were the one who sentenced the man to his bizarre imprisonment.
0: Mazarin does have a place in the popular conception of the story, as the possible father of Queen Anne's illegitimate child. But even in that account, it's still King Louis XIV that sentences the man to his iron headgear.
1: But all along, historians should have been focusing more on Cardinal Mazarin, the man whose failure to cover up his own illicit dealings would ultimately result in the man, the myth, and the legend of the iron mask.
0: We'll explain how all of it comes together after this. Now, the conclusion of our unexplained mystery.
1: By 1653, Cardinal Jules Mazarin was among the most powerful men in France with a massive fortune and a collection of priceless artifacts that included many of the crown jewels of England.
0: But he wouldn't be able to enjoy his position for much longer. In 1653, the cardinal's health began to quickly deteriorate from an unknown disease. His sudden decline made his underlings understand that there needed to be a plan in place regarding what to do with the cardinal's fortune if he were to die.
1: (laughs) Mazarin had no children. Though he had essentially ruled France for years, he was not royalty. His whole estate would potentially be up for grabs if he died before making a will.
0: Perhaps in anticipation of getting a chance to claim some of the cardinal's wealth, his minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, started to inventory Mazarin's estate.
1: What he found was astounding. The cardinal was even richer than the highest estimates had expected. And of course, among these valuable works of art and priceless artifacts were some of the English crown jewels. Colbert didn't work alone. He was aided by the accountant we mentioned earlier, Antoine-Hercule Picon, who hailed from Solis.
0: Picon brought a staff of valets also from Solis when he came to Paris to serve under Colbert.
1: It is evident from the surviving correspondences between Mazarin, Colbert, and Picon that one of the valets eventually reached a position of prominence among the serving staff. This, finally, is where our titular character reappears in the story. From
0: the mid 1650s to 1660, Mazarin and Colbert make numerous references to someone called Picon's man. A servant is seen to act as a kind of liaison between the three men,
1: and who was privy to confidential information. In more recent history, that is the 21st century. Historian Paul Cennino went to the town of Solis to try to pick up the trail of the man in the iron mask. He
0: found old municipal documents that indicated at least one family with the surname, Dorger lived in the town in the mid-1600s.
1: All of this is to state the theory. Eustache Doger actually worked as a valet in the service of Antoine Hercule Picon. He served Picon as well as Picon's boss, Colbert, and Colbert's boss, Mazarin. He was the elusive Picon's man.
0: And as Picon and Colbert inventoried Mazarin's fortune in the late 1650s, it's more than likely that Doge became aware that Mazarin had the English crown jewels.
1: The crown jewels presented something of a dilemma. Since the 1640s, when Oliver Cromwell and the British Parliament learned that Henrietta was selling the jewels, they had made the declaration that the gems were the property of England, and anyone who bought or possessed them without Cromwell's permission would be an enemy of the state.
0: This made the matter of organizing a will a bit complicated. No one wants an inheritance that could lead to
1: a war. The easiest solution would have been for Mazarin to leave his fortune to King Louis XIV. This would have made some sense. Mazarin had practically raised the young king and saw him as a son. And given that Mazarin had massively increased his fortune by abusing his power as France's unofficial regent, it made some kind of karmic sense that he would give it all back to the monarchy in death. But King Louis
0: refused the offer. Mazarin had nieces, nephews, and other extended family. Louis XIV was rich enough. Mazarin's fortune should go to those who needed it.
1: Mazarin eventually died in 1661 without a clear will. The matter of his estate was left to Colbert and Picon, who suddenly found themselves sitting on a stockpile of priceless artifacts that could get them in serious trouble if anyone found out about it.
0: So rather than claim the fortune for themselves, they purged it, destroying any record they could find of what the Cardinal actually owned when he died and spiriting away much of the treasure from France so that it could not be linked to them.
1: They also went after political opponents who may have used the knowledge of Mazarin's fortune against them. In our last episode, We discussed the fate of Nicolas Fouquet. Fouquet was a superintendent who served King Louis XIV until he fell out of favor and was accused of embezzlement in 1661, for which he was promptly imprisoned.
0: Well, as it turns out, Fouquet was a staunch enemy of Colbert. Like Colbert, Fouquet had amassed much of his own fortune under the tutelage of Mazarin, and the two men often butted heads for Mazarin's favor.
1: So after Mazarin died, Fouquet likely knew what Colbert and Picone were sitting on and may have even tried to use it against them until Colbert got Fouquet imprisoned.
0: Now, to be clear, Fouquet absolutely was embezzling money, but so were a lot of people in the French nobility at that time. It's likely that Fouquet was only exposed because Colbert was in a position to get him out of the way.
1: But that still left the matter of Eustache Dogey. In 1661, it seems that Picon and Colbert felt they could trust Dogey to keep his mouth shut about what was going on.
0: But it wouldn't be long before they found themselves in need of another scapegoat.
1: After Cardinal Mazarin's death, King Louis XIV decided to do away with the position of chief advisor. He wanted absolute power without an advisor who could use his position to enrich himself, as Mazarin had done.
0: Louis XIV was also an ambitious ruler, and within a few years of his coronation, he was looking to conquer neighboring European
1: countries. By 1668, the Sun King was preparing to invade Spain and conquer the Spanish Low Countries. In order to accomplish this, however, Louis knew he would need help. And so he turned to his cousin Charles II, the son of Charles I and newly reinstated King of England.
0: Charles II was eager to help Louis in his war, but he had a request. He wanted the missing crown jewels back, as well as any of his mother and father's heirlooms that may have been sold to
1: France. Louis XIV seemingly never knew that Mazarin had the jewels, but he suspected that they were somewhere to be found in France, perhaps in the possession of a French noble.
0: Louis XIV assured his cousin Charles that he had no knowledge of the jewels or any dealings between his staff and Charles' mother, Henrietta. Charles took Louis at his word and agreed to assist in the coming war.
1: The issue seemed settled. Until one fateful night, when Eustache Doge got a little too drunk and allegedly spoke freely about the crown jewels.
0: Word got back to Louis XIV. He knew that if it became public knowledge that his chief advisor had nickel-and-dimed Charles II's mother for the country's most precious heirlooms, which effectively ensured Charles I's defeat and subsequent execution, then his alliance with England would be in grave peril.
1: So Louis XIV did what any king who was mad with power would do. He issued an arrest warrant for eustache Dauger on trumped-up charges of being an enemy of the state.
0: It's notable that Colbert and Picon both escaped a similar fate. And it seems this is because they either were able to assure interested parties that they would tell no one what they knew or because they were able to use the remnants of Mazarin's fortune to pay off anyone who looked into their own parts of the story.
1: Recall the bizarre and stringent conditions that were enforced upon the man's arrest. How he was not permitted to be alone with or even speak to anyone else.
0: When the prisoner was transported to the Bastille, his face was covered by a velvet mask which, naturally, gave rise to the long-standing myth of the iron mask.
1: This may raise the question of why Louis XIV didn't just have the man executed instead of condemning him to such a bizarre imprisonment for over 30 years. Though we can't speak to this for
0: sure, there are two possible
1: answers. The first is that Louis XIV or his advisors knew that an execution might draw more attention to the matter than anyone would want it's also possible that someone had a mind for mercy.
0: Doge could couldn't be allowed to tell people what he knew, but he had hardly committed an offense that justified having him killed.
1: Then again, Louis XIV was an eccentric and power-hungry man. His reign is largely defined by a series of actions that pitted the monarchy against the common people and ultimately set the stage for the French Revolution.
0: Maybe he was feeling particularly sadistic on the day he ordered Doge's arrest, and thus he commissioned the bizarre punishment.
1: The theory that Eustache Doge was just a valet, not a fallen noble, not a bastard son, not a twin brother, does seem to be the most likely one.
0: But despite all that we've learned and all that we suspect to be true, we still don't know the answer to the most important question, Why?
1: After 300 years of asking why anyone would sentence a man to live in confinement with a mask around his face, we still don't have a clear answer.
0: And as long as we don't have a confirmed answer to that question, the much more engaging fictional account of the man's story will always have a place in the public consciousness.
1: The mystery of The Man in the Iron Mask It's a lot like Atlantis or the Holy Grail. In the absence of absolutely concrete proof, there is little modern scholars can do to solve the mystery. As such, myths and stories take precedent until the history of these subjects becomes indistinguishable from the centuries of fiction written about them.
0: We can piece together disparate facts, but in the absence of confessions or real eyewitness statements, When it comes to the man in the iron mask, all we can do is offer our best guess.
1: Thanks again for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on this topic, we'd recommend The Search for the Man in the Iron Mask, a historical detective story by Paul Sonino, which, alongside other sources, was extremely helpful in our research for this episode.
0: You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
1: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us
0: on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Network. We'll see you next time.
1: See you next Thursday. And
0: remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Avery Ruda and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.